0: Hello and welcome to episode number three of the, uh, what is still known as the Figuring It Out As We Go Along show. I'm Dan Sapin from Long Island, New York, and I'm here with my trusty companions,
1: Martin Holberg calling in from Stockholm,
2: Sweden. Joe Messina in Boston. And we're cosmopolitan, I can't stand it. <laughs> and uh, we're gonna talk about some stuff
0: today. My friend Martin here had an interesting idea for a show. We're gonna tell stories and then talk about the stories.
1: I mean, something happened to me this week and I just wanted to pop it into the show and see what we, if we can figure something out around it. Um, so I'll try to set the scene a little bit. I mean, I don't know if you can see the lights coming in through the windows here, it's approaching 8, 15. In the evening in Sweden, we have a beautiful summer pre- now ramping up. You know, the Scandinavian summer is quite something. And this weekend on Friday, we had a, we we have a group of friends. We're six six buddies, all in our forties, early forties, and we play badminton. I guess it's a racquetball would be the American equivalent of. Or do you do you know badminton? Oh yeah, yeah we have bad, badminton. We've got all <laughs> kinds of here. Yeah, we have badminton. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a. It's a good sport, let's put it that way. We have played for 10 years, so when every every semester, every term, we have like a finale evening where we make a little tournament and then we drink beer and we eat dinner together. So we had our game, we went down to the restaurant outside, it had burgers and beer, Uh, beautiful evening. We walk along the water, which is right close to where I live here. And there are these small bridges that comes out from the walking path out into the water where people can come and swim. These are like big public areas around the parks bunch of youth out there drinking. You have the high school uh, people taking their grad- graduation this week. So it's pumping. We go out on this bridge and start drinking our wine, having nice conversations. And then six, I think it's six people or five people, like five guys and one girl, they come running out on this bridge and, you know, they're happy, they're drunk. And we're like, hey, hello. Uh, and they want to swim, obviously. So the two, of the two of the guys of this group of five uh, they start getting undressed, they jump in, and they're kind of shooting the shit with us, talking a little bit of, you know, trash, but in a friendly way. Uh, so we, we're vibing with them. And then the girl uh, takes off of her clothes and jumps into the water. So they're all having a swim. The girl comes up, and then one of the two boys who, who first jumped in, he walks back in towards towards land from the bridge, and he pushes the girl into the water on a very ground or shallow You know, and we're like, what the fuck? That's dangerous. You know, you can break your legs. I mean, there wasn't even water up to the waist. And she runs up to this dude and she's like, what the fuck are you doing? Are you out of your mind? So we're like, whoa, maybe these people don't know each other. There was actually two groups. So that group of five consisted of two dudes and then one group of three, which was a girl and and her two friends, like her boyfriend and a friend of his or something. So the girl is raging on this guy. And he's being quite smirked to her you know he's like oh do you think i should apologize for this you said you wanted to swim and he's like you know ramping her up and then one of the two guys who came with a girl he walks up to this fellow and this is happening on the bridge we're on so it's literally like one meter or two yards you would say i guess it's a very small confined space so one of the friends of the girl he takes a he takes a bottle of white wine like a full bottle and he's like you apologize to the girl and he's like, fuck you. He's like, I'm going to smash this bottle of wine in your head. And we're all like, come on, guys. Take it. You know, we're no nobody's really paying attention. But then this guy, he's maybe 25, you know, like very thin, skinny. Um, he doesn't look. He he cracks the wine bottle across the face on this guy who is only in his boxer shorts. it just come up from swimming. And the whole bridge just kind of, whoom, you know, at least my perception of these things, like, time just froze or something there's blood streaming out and one of my friends who's actually a medical doctor he's like takes the guy who'd been hit start looking at him i grabbed the guy who smashed him and i just tell him like you stay right here you know you can fuck up 10 years of your life if because they're con- you know he's continuing to like ah, ba, 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 because you pushed her so they're jo- and the guy who got hit tries to swing at the other guy so so me and my group of friends luckily enough we were you know calm enough to be able to help diffuse this and uh, we call the cops uh but but the guy who smashed the bottle eventually ran away so the cops came after uh we gave a t-shirt to the guy had been hit and so on so i mean the story here that i want to bring is like how weird that sensation was like within two minutes you know a beautiful evening like the it's a per- pitch perfect swedish summer night then turns into this I mean, this is violence in in its classical sense, pure violence. Like, it's not it's not a cocky street. Like, when at least in my view, when you when you smack a, a full bottle of white wine across the face, where there's like throat, uh, pulse. What do you call that? Like pulsating uh, veins. Yeah, you have yeah. your eyes. I mean, you could you could injure a person significantly for life doing that. Uh, so there is some element of violence that is beyond kind of in my book at least, two people being cocky with one another, um, and it and it kind of jarred me and us, like the whole night after this had diffused and the cops had been there, we were all quite shaky, you know, none of, I mean, we still had a, a nice time, but everything came down, we're like, maybe it's time to go home, it was around midnight, we all have kids, so it was time to go anyway, but The next day, when we're writing WhatsApp messages on our little thread, you know, everybody commented on this session. It's something that that got to us. We couldn't we couldn't expel this episode from our own (laughs) experiences of that evening. And it's something that becomes introjective. It's something that's scary, and and it's um, it's uh, delicate or or evil in the sense how how quick and how easily one can end up in a completely uncontrollable world because that's how I felt like there are things going on here that I have no fucking idea why this is happening, who these people are, what, what is my role in this. So it's, it's that kind of trauma response where within two minutes, you know, your whole sensation of things is just like you're in Beirut or, you know, whatever, like somewhere in a war zone, Iraq or something. Um, So yeah, I guess this is my little story. And I would like to unpack this. Like, how do these things come about? How should one understand it? Because even though it's scary, it doesn't mean it's untrue. These things do happen. And I mean, on a shallow level, one could talk about, yeah, it's good to be able to know some martial arts or self-defense. But That's not what I'm after here. I'm after a more kind of metaphysical or existential discussion around this. Like, How should we conceive of our place in the world when within a couple of seconds, you can find yourself in these kind of extremely weird situations that then will become part of your story until you can process them. And maybe if they're big traumas, they'll never fully leave you. Yeah. Um, So I don't know what what your thoughts are based on on this little story. But
0: um, yeah. Yeah. I think that one of the things that stands out for me is your use of the word trauma. Uh, Mm -hmm. Because if if you think of uh, what we mean by trauma, trauma doesn't have to be uh, a situation in which the terrible thing happens to you. Although something did happen to you here, your reality got shaken by something. Um, that maybe the thing that that makes uh, a, an incident traumatic is how it shakes your ability to to stay there mentally you know, to to be present for it without whatever, whatever part of us dissociates, whatever part of us numbs us or stops time or sort of makes us go cold in a situation um, that is a trauma and certainly going from one situation to the the opposite, something so radically different can do that. But it's also, you know, these um, raw wild, you know, primitive things. You know, you guys are having a uh, a perfect, beautiful evening mm-hmm. and all of a sudden you're faced with something that, that reminds you of just how shitty life can get all of a sudden. Yeah. Some people crack up in those situations. People go into shock, you know, because they can't yeah. process it. So, but what stands out for you? What's, you, you mentioned time and mm-hmm. you, you didn't know whether The sort of was the bridge shaking or your own sense of reality shaking or or something else?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's something like that. I'm not fully sure of, of how to explain it, but but there is something of the I mean, all of us who are there and I think everybody would react in a similar way. We become extremely rational, extremely slow. I mean, I spoke to this guy who cracked the wine bottle in the other dude's face like I was a professional hostage negotiator or something. <laughs> I mean, intuitively, I put both of my hands on his chest. I mean, he was like 25. He was not a, a scary figure, and there was something in me that just told me, like, he knows he has passed the limit that he's going to regret. That was just my intuition. But, I mean, those things, I think, are like bodily adaptations that goes like this, right? And, you know, Thomas took the other guy, and my friend Ule gave a T-shirt. I were a uh, boom, boom, boom. Or like some kind of cops in there or something. And I think a lot of people have that reaction, right? When when you're in a situation where things crack up, there is that response that feels, yeah, almost dissociated. I mean, it's like, it's not really me who's doing these things. It's some other kind of force that is just like, this needs to be done in this way. You guys listen to us. We're old men. We have children. Sit down, you know? And And that's maybe some kind of trauma response or dissociation, I don't know, but but it's like a very non-emotional, um, very efficient, um, yeah, very tight, somehow, yeah. so kind of tightness to life there.
0: Something, I'm sorry, Joe, let me just jump in here, there's one, one more thing. Um, we talk about trauma dissociation, but the thing I heard was that as much as this just shook you up, Uh, you know, unless you're someone who deals with this kind of thing on a regular basis, this just knocks you right out of your normal, uh, not even your normal mental state. It's like, I think the thing that makes it feel like dissociation is that it brings up a different Martin. It brings up, it reshuffles the deck suddenly and then there's all these different things being asked of you, but yet not only you sized this guy up and mm. did this sort of controlling but containing thing. The yeah. hands on the chest, the wise yeah. words, the sort of wise, mm. but now's the moment. Stop this right yeah. here. Yeah. But everybody took on a role. Yeah. Somebody got the shirt. Somebody else attended yeah. to the injured. as yeah, if, It's weird, actually. No matter how alien this was, you mm. all fell into a position without having to think about it
1: yeah exactly it's uh yeah and in that way one can also i mean one can flip this in different ways but it's like you pull out the rug or or the floor underneath but all of a sudden i mean the human is is a weird animal like you adapt so quickly and it's almost like there is some kind of response within people to do these things Right? Like you hear about people who do these extraordinary feats, right? Like a tree falls over a parent or something, and a child can lift it up, or, you know, like in, in moments of crisis, there is something that pops out that's just like, what the hell is this? How? I mean, fair enough. A few of us have been through it a, a little bit in life. So it's, it's maybe some experience comes also. But, but I think it's more of a generic kind of quality that any person does when, when shit gets this difficult. I think one does it to be able to control for my own sake like i think talking to that guy was my way of trying to calm this down so that i could be there in a way you know um yeah but it makes me think of i don't know if you have seen uh there's a good netflix documentary called fight world where a guy goes to different countries and studies martial arts and then he goes to cameroon cambodia thailand mexico he talks to the trainers of Alvarez and uh, Chance, uh, whatever, some of these great fighters. But then he goes to Israel and he's going to investigate Krav Maga. And I mean, that's something else, dude. Like, because all these other sports, he's been talking about, like, fighting in a cage, you know, techniques, skills. And then he goes to Israel and interviews these guys. And they're like, these are methods of how to kill other human beings, basically this is not a martial art like when he goes to israel he, fl- he he gets flipped like his whole conception of his documentary series gets flipped because there they're not talking about like how to throw a cross or you know how to roll the punch they're like if you have a knife you break his arm this way uh, and if he has a gun rolling up your window and locking the door that's krav maga you know and it's like to 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 take a detour around the guy who holds the the bottle that would be Krav Maga. So it's like a completely dip- different conception because there's not fighting. It's like life in a way. And of course, this comes with their history and their territory being you know, constrained geopolitically. And, and it's also a very small country, right? Mm-hmm. So every time you walk out the door, you, know, you, you have a, a collective of, of different religious identities and, and different cultural expressions that needs to coexist. So there's more pressure maybe in Israel historically and geopolitically than in other countries so the people living there maybe have adapted to this but it's a similar metaphor that I want to use here because yeah. two guys pushing each other could be more like boxing you know what I mean it's like yeah. okay they're they're sizing each other up they're gonna have a fight you know maybe there'll be a couple of punches you know the old joke but, like, hold
0: me back hold me back it's like somebody yeah. please hold me back <laughs> you know I guess
1: yeah. I, I don't know what I'm gonna do next but that's like that's like boxing. But then this krav maga is the guy cracks the bottle. It's like it's not fighting anymore, dude. You can kill a guy. Um, so yeah, it was just something that I don't know if you if you know anything about this krav maga. Yeah. I have never encountered it before.
2: Oh yeah, I've heard you know? of it. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I've heard of krav maga, um, but uh, what this made me think of is, um, I guess, well. When something like that happens and like, I, you know, thankfully don't have a lot of experience with uh, violent situations like that. Um, but I, I, it reminds me of like, like a death of a family member or something like that, where um, you, uh, you, you have things that you do automatically in the moment. And then the experience of trauma is sort of like the the aftermath where you're trying to get used to the idea that like you are a person who this has happened to now. (laughs) Yeah. Um, One of those, this is me. Right. (laughs) Right. If you know what I mean. This is me right now. Yeah, exactly. Like it's, um, uh, I think you, you might've said something like this before Martin, but like, uh, yeah, it's you're you're witnessing your reality change, um, yeah. and it's it's uh, hard to get used to, I guess.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. The shift of reality.
0: Something that came up here, Martin, was that we we may not know we're doing this ever until something. Shakes us enough that we realize that the the difference between, like you say, the shoving. There are these rituals, okay. And I mean, you know, if we've watched, uh, you know, nature shows, or you know, there've been plenty of scenes in comedies that that deal with this, where you know, there's uh, the the display, the fear threat display. You know, I'm gonna make myself look bigger and tougher. I'm gonna use a lot of big words. Uh, I'm going to shove you. I'm going to make sure you can see my bulging muscles, you know, so that maybe you won't hurt me. You'll think I'm dangerous. Um, But every so often you have a situation that does not fit a category. This is not a ritual. This is not buying time to figure out what to do next. Um, You know, uh, you have a situation when you call it real with a capital R, it takes you out of any possible comfort zone it gives you something raw and your nervous system whatever preparation you've had from life that you may or may not know you've had suddenly forces you you one of the things that's traumatic about situations like this is that you will often find out who you are when you don't have uh when you there's nothing recognizable happening when you don't have a script when you're not sure, there's no cops, people are, oh, you, you know, you, you can't take the law into your own hands. Well, actually, yeah. we take the law into our own hands all the time because the cops aren't there all the time. You know, yeah. there, there are a million situations. Some Most of them are not this urgent. A million situations in which we have to improvise. And we don't know what the parameters are. We're trying to figure out what they are while that adrenaline is pouring and and, and pumping. And we're not, and time has either slowed down or speeded up. Um, But there's something else that, hmm, don't let me forget this now. This was a a good one. Something about how, oh yeah, Krav Maga. I've had a few Israeli friends, a few Israeli classmates, actually, you know, I I was raised in a very Zionist family, and, you know, I'm I'm staying away from politics as much as I can in terms of, you know, Palestine, Israel. Um, I just don't want to go there now, but one thing that I was raised understanding is that Israel was a tiny place, uh, you know, the size of a relatively small state. Uh, in the United States, and it is surrounded by countries, all of whom don't just want to beat it, they want Israel to never exist again, to never have existed. And so you have people who all serve in the army, all serve in the armed forces, no matter what their background and preparation is. These are people who live every day with a greatly enhanced awareness that something can explode at any moment. You know, whatever uh, uh, assumptions the three of us have about how, yeah, shit happens, but it's probably not happening to us. It has happened again and again and again. And the assumption is if we don't, if we're not prepared to respond, we're just going to die, period. Um, And it's going to be close to home. Now, Krav Maga is one of many really good uh sort of save save your ass uh arts mm-hmm. but what came a couple things came to mind one is in our first year of graduate school there was our dean of the department at the time uh who had had a terrible trauma he was closing up his office and he's a psychoanalyst he's a phd he's not an md he doesn't have a prescription pad a couple of thugs bust into his office and demand pills and demand that he write them a script or give them whatever he has. He's trying to tell them, I'm not that kind of doctor. They don't believe it. They don't wanna believe it. And they beat him half to death. And that was really, he was badly physically and psychologically injured from this. And uh, when he got a little better, he started studying with um, the master of a couple of Filipino arts. Uh, Spencer G was, the his guru's name, uh, who taught him an art called Pananandata, which is like Kali. There, like that's the Filipino kravmaga guy, and okay. then he brought Spencer to uh, teach an early morning seminar to anyone who wanted to join. This was our first year of grad school. I was working in a clinic in a particularly dangerous neighborhood, um, and a lot of us, you know, just uh, even you know Bob. Uh, the professor um, had been telling us one day most of you are going to encounter some violence in your i'm a psychologist by the way you know you're going to be in a hospital on a locked ward or something and in fact i have the majority of my friends who have worked in mental hospitals have been punched some of them from behind they've been hit chairs thrown at them Um, the point of the uh, little class this informal class was that uh, Spencer, the Pananandata expert, was going to teach us how to defend yourself against a violent patient um, without killing them using whatever you have around you a chair, a clipboard, a coffee mug. Where are you in the room? Where's the door? Is there a table in between? How are you going to survive? Maybe restrain this person, but not harm them unless. It's unavoidable. And part of what we were learning was that in this business, you know, mental health, um, even we have our assumptions. We've got a lot of assumptions. If you talk about it, it gets better. You know, let's be reasonable. Share your feelings, you know, empathize. (laughs) That works a lot of the time. Um, But that's one of those rituals with all these assumptions that if we do these things, everything will be fine you'll get insight, you know? There will be character change. No, there are a lot of people who are not interested in character change. They want to fucking kill you. They might not even know you are you. You're just a reflection of what's going on in their fevered mind at that moment. But what you do in the next five seconds, two seconds, is gonna determine whether you live, whether your child has a father, you know, whether you're crippled for the rest of your life. And that's real. And what we're talking about here is real with a capital R.
1: Yeah.
0: How do we respond? I've,
1: yeah. I mean, I have a few. Maybe I'll do my little few jabs that are kind of un, unsorted and see where it goes. And, and I mean, just one, one uh, what do you call it, passage or um, passage. Uh, I thought the whole time that the guy with the wine bottle was going to push the other guy into the water. That's right, because he was standing there in his boxers, like one meter from the, from the, he just came up from the, from the water, right? So I thought like that would be the perfect humiliating move to just push him back into the water. But that didn't happen. Uh, Anyhow, what I, what I thought about just listening to you guys here, I have like a few, one idea that came up was what we talked about last episode, where we talked about boxing, because we talked about that there's adversary that, that pulls people. Like, the greatest boxers are rarely rich middle-class kids. I mean, there, there are a few, but the real great ones usually come from real tough adversarial conditions, right? That's something you brought up last. So that made me think of that somehow. Like, how much of this real real is actually a constitutive force of what could be understood as... Reality, right? Like, in a, in, a, in a no, pretend, yeah, in no, a,
0: no bubble wrap around you and life.
1: Yeah, exactly. H- how much of that could be understood as, as good in some, you know, in some, Darwinian or or evolutionary or adaptive. View of life, right? Like, is it is it necessary? Like, is this kind of violence a streak of of life that we need to, understand within ourselves and within others? in order to get a full understanding, a full, but I mean, approaching a fuller, uh, more integrated nuanced understanding of reality. Uh, so that was one thought. Another thought I had was that I wanted to go a little bit with what Joe said there about, you know, you, you go through something. I don't think that maybe this ep- episode is that for me, but I have definitely had my share of those things. And you come out on the other end. And like you said, Joe, you're not the same person anymore. Like you have to relate to the fact that you, like you are this whatever it is, you know. You now are the person with a deceased relative, or right. you know, you are the person with chronic pain in your lower back, or you know, whatever it could be. Um, so that was another thought that I thought interesting to explore. Um, and then the third one, when we talk about the real, the real, I just start thinking of Lacan, of course, you know. Well, who doesn't? And I, I can't say, yeah, yeah. Who doesn't? <laughs> And and there, I guess, what's the difference between the Lacanian real and let's say the O of Beyond, right? that 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 affinity, like that that in infinite infinite potential. I mean, Beyond's O to me is more romantic and and uh, more pleasant to think of. For me, I, I associate Lacanian real with more, let's say, horror or trauma. Yeah or let's define these terms a little
0: bit though because these, these yeah. are i think the, these are important and the and what they mean is important and the distinctions are important say you even are you're a lot fresher with lacan than i am uh say more about why we have this concept of the real with the
1: capital r Ooh, man, you're putting me on the spot now i don't think i i can we can edit it out that, if it sucks yeah yeah we, that's that's a good that's a good uh, uh, what do you can we edit it? that shelf- out? <laughs> but that's a shelf holder, a placeholder. No, but I mean, for me, I know that the real are one of Lacan's three, right? You have the imaginary, you have the real and the symbolic. Those are the three, let's say, strands of life. And Lacan says that the subject is constituted through an instant- instantaneous mingling of these three dimensions. So the real would then be that which can never fully be, be represented. It's those primordial, affective, um, core kind of sensations of being a subject in the world that could also be pre-language, before language, before memory, um, like we talked about last episode. So there is something of the real that is untouchable. He says this somewhere, Lacan. Like I got
0: so-
1: Yeah. Le <laughs> real, c'est l'impossible. He says that somewhere, that the, the real is always untouchable in some dimension. But then it is, mo- is married with the imaginary, which is the dyadic phase between the child and the mother, basically where, where images take a central role in, in the, how the psyche functions. And then the third register is the symbolic, which is linked to language, right? So the way that these three elements, let's say the non-linguistical uh, primordial affective core, the ima- ima- imaginary uh, fant- fantasy-based realm, and then the linguistic, structural that's linked to, let's say, society and principles and, and uh, history and human narrative and so on. Where these three meet, that's where the subject has his or her subjectivity, basically. So the real in this aspect would be something that is impossible to grasp and, and contains a certain element of horror often. Mm-hmm. At least that's my preconception. And once again, I don't know Lacan enough to say that this is true. But my understanding through Cheat Check is that there is definitely some element of horror in the Lacanian real. Yeah, it's something that's taunting you in a way.
0: Yeah. Joe, questions? Because I know your well, part of your value here is that you you've not been loaded down with these concepts, but you're <laughs> you're you're at least as smart as we are, and you can tell when things are I don't know bullshit or need <laughs> to be clarified.
2: Um, yeah. No, I think um, I. I think this is coming across pretty clearly um but what can we add to to um uh to tie it together um so yeah I don't know I think uh it's just so, like this could relate to like almost anything yeah. um so uh i don't know like dan can you tell us like what's happening um in our in our brains <laughs> when uh we when we're in this moment of like automatic uh you know leaping to action versus um m- uh mulling it over a thousand times afterwards okay well the
0: Basics here without having to get too much into the neurology and the amygdala and the medial prefrontal cortex and, and you know, the capacity for, for mirroring, uh, you know, and, and what breaks down, it's fight flight. Right. And fight flight is an important concept for humans because we're our health, to some respect, our ability to function socially and to hold it together uh, without. Falling apart um, what was it that, that uh, Christopher Bolas book, uh, you know, was it something about uh, going to pieces without falling apart or falling apart without going to pieces? Fight, flight is something that takes us out of, well, all of these things. Uh, actually, the two items, the imaginary and the symbolic. Mm-hmm. Um, fight, flight, you freeze. You run. You attack and kill. Now, I've got my, my uh, lovable semi-wild dog over here who's, who's looking very tame on the carpet. But I often think one of the great things about our relationship, because we really kind of get each other, I think we get each other, um, he might say otherwise, um, is that although he can love and he knows how to communicate with us a little bit, um, he is in the moment. And if he sees a dog in the neighborhood and he doesn't like that dog, he's ready to tear his throat out. He will barrel through the front door. There's no discussion. There is no posturing. Um, if somebody is coming at us uh, wearing a hoodie, he hates people wearing hoodies, he will lunge. And there's, you know, it's, 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 it's lunge first and don't ask questions later. Um, but at the same time, when he loves you, he loves you. There's no embarrassment. Now, what does this mean uh, on the human level? Well, um, there's no buffer zone. There's no, hey, let's talk about this. There's no shoving, and pushing. There's no use of polite language to try to avoid a conflict. Like, I think you're an asshole. I don't trust you. I think you may want to hurt me. But I'll say, hey, sir, how you doing? Can I help you? As opposed to, you know, holding my shotgun on him and say, state your purpose. you got three seconds. And even that three seconds is a buffer zone. My dog doesn't give anybody three seconds. It doesn't occur to him. Now, in that fight or flight moment, a human being can either flee, fight or freeze, or they can find something three-dimensional, something that enables them to still communicate, something that if the situation allows it, I can still to some degree think about how this situation can be salvaged without anything horrible and traumatic happening or something less traumatic. Now I'm looking up on on Wikipedia here on The Real from Lacan. Uh, The real is that which is authentic, unchangeable. It may be considered primordial. It's external, uh, infinite, absolute, noumenal, like uh, Immanuel Kant, the philosopher, speaks of the phenomenon, which is reality as it is filtered through the senses, and the noumenon, which is the thing in itself, whatever it is separate from our ability to apprehend it. Um, And most folks don't uh, bother thinking about just how much, signal processing goes on with every experience, Um, it can be easily demonstrated that we have no accurate memories, none whatsoever. That every experience is filtered through number one, a very limited channel of our senses. It is screened for relevant and irrelevant. It is then correlated with familiar things if there are any So that we are not reprocessing or processing something newly that we uh, don't have any precedent for. And by the time we remember it, we're already using it to rewrite past memories. So in this situation, we are already inclined to interpret the hell out of what's happening or to try to. Are you friend or enemy? Can I say something to you? Um, Can I disappear? Can I say, I want my mommy, you know, which is imaginary right there. That is the imaginary and the symbolic, all right? The real here is challenging you to respond to the facts, not based on your comfort, not based on what's normal for you. And so what can we do as humans when we're faced with a situation that is all fight or flight, that is just raw, real get real you know think of, of um you know when people talk about uh you know getting real or keeping it real or being down to earth it means less bullshit, right and the extreme version of that is the imaginary is i don't like this situation i or something in me is going to pretend it's something else so this yeah. isn't happening to me um, or it hap- its happening, but it kind of sucks. But it's not as bad as I think it is. And please, somebody hug me. Mm. And then there's I the mean, symbolic. There's a, yeah. Yeah. Sorry, no go ahead. And the symbolic is um, the basis of all human communication. We find words that are agreed upon in terms of what they mean, more or less. There are acts that we can perform that uh, help others engage or stay away from us or empathize with us. But all of these things are separate from the event that is happening. And when we are shaken up enough by this fight flight uh, reaction, this pure instinctive reaction, we can't imagine or we imagine so much that we go away. You know, we're not home. You think of how in that moment, did did time Mm. seem infinite, you know, did time suddenly collapse, did it freeze? (laughs) and yeah, there was no time and we really. don't know what to say yeah. you know so um in a way uh our struggle is to stay three-dimensional so we can still move so this sucks this is horrible i wish it wasn't happening but i'm dealing with it
1: yeah but that's what i wanted to do because i think it's a neat uh, i mean something is coming together for me in terms of joe's previous comment of you know you've suffered through something and it is you know you're slightly a different person afterwards right you have to you have to carry that experience of of being changed in some some way so my my idea here would be then which i think based on my experience at least actually makes sense that one updates the the symbolic and the imaginary field based on the experiences from the real i mean i think that's what people you know when you go to trauma therapy right there is a very often, a narrative element. You know, write your story, tell your story, expose yourself to, to telling the story to strangers. Rewrite but your that memories. Is, yeah, exactly. So, so the idea there is to link up to new language, right? So, so let's say one has suffered a, you know, let's say my my cat died or whatever. Okay, so now I am a person that has a, has a cat that is dead. Uh, but what what can I do? I can I can start finding new languages. Maybe other there's other other guys out there with a dead cat, I can chat to them. Uh, how did they relate with this? You know, you go to different groups or whatever, and you start talking. So you get new images, new dream work. You, you get a new, an updated imaginary filter, and also, ideally, an updated symbolic filter. So, yeah, you are actually not the same person. I mean, Vladimir Klitschko 2.0, he's different than 1.0. So he fights in a different style. He uses different elements within his body and his skill set than he did before. I mean, he's still a boxer, but he boxes in a complete... So I think that whole, that whole struggle of how to get back into a coherent set of these three realms, the real, the imaginary, and the symbolic, that's when I guess that subject would feel healed in a way. You know, like, yeah, my cat is still dead, but I, I, my life is now... Uh, put together again. And depending on the severity of the trauma and the the frequency of trauma, I guess, and the nature of trauma, that could be more or less challenging. I mean, think about people grow, living in, in extreme poverty and war and stuff. I mean, th- their life, their blueprint is trauma. The idea to, to update this, to come back into the default zone of security and comfort, I think it's something to talk less bullshit one has to be very frank that for a lot of millions of people that doesn't exist uh there there is no blueprint to deviate from there is
0: no comfort zone and there will
1: not be no i mean you grew up in aleppo or you know whatever like there is no there is no rosetta stone that you then depart from and then you want to get back into a coherent view of the world like for some people this is grinding from day one right and i guess the people who commit a lot of these things they also have maybe in this case clearly not i mean this was a well off swedish guy in the richest part of stockholm but you know for a lot of people the, there is this is life this is kravmaga you know <laughs> this is how life looks uh, the, so those were my reflections there that there is something a possibility of updating the 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 imaginary and the symbolic discourses based on experiences in the real and that is a struggle that is a work Uh, that is a healing work one could say maybe
2: yeah well yeah i think a lot about how um uh perception shapes reality for us because there's a certain limit to how much we can know the real Uh, (laughs) like i always think about this example where there's not that much water in here but like when you when you have like a straw in water there's that weird like distortion where yeah. the straw under the water looks like offset from the the exposed straw um and that's apparently something that um certain animals like certain birds don't actually have that like they they see something underwater for what it is cuz they are you know evolved to hunt fish or whatever um and uh, and it's like, well, <laughs> if we can't even, you know, all see the same uh, fish under the water and, you know, and agree on like what spot it's in, then, uh, you know, it's it's hard to like how how knowable is reality. If we could actually see some rendering of reality, uh, uh you know separate from human perception, would it be recognizable at all? <laughs> Did you ever see uh, they have examples of what a flower looks like to a
0: bee? You no. Know, and so you see a perfectly, and we could look this up, uh, I don't know, provide a little bibliography here, um, but it's very cool. You take an ordinary dull, whitish flower, but you see it in, I, I mean, we see a tiny little sliver of the electromagnetic spectrum. Um, Most of it is meaningless to us. You know, go just a little bit to the left into the ultraviolet, it burns you. Light no longer communicates. It literally burns your flesh. But uh, uh, that insect sees in that plain white flower an elaborate landing strip colors that we do not have names for but when we sort of filter it back into the visible spectrum we see these remarkable patterns all of which are basically like the landing strip landing strips at kennedy airport with the signs and the, all of them telling the insect food down here nope make a left yeah. um but that's what's relevant to a honeybee and the all the the situation here we're talking about is not just um you know, what do our sense, uh, does our sense apparatus allow us to pick up on? But how much of the hard part of reality, the stuff that challenges and threatens us, are we capable of taking in? And there's taking in, and then there's, can we respond to it? So I think one of the beauties in the situation that you were telling us about today, Martin, um, was that it was scary, it was ugly, There was something a little unthinkable. I mean, this this guy, obviously, this is somebody who who would, you know, your description of this probably relatively well-off, skinny, unimposing 25-year-old who went straight from don't bother our friend, this girl who gets pushed in the water, to a potentially murderous gesture with nothing in between except the demand for an apology he's basically saying join me in the symbolic order or i will murder you
1: yes that's exactly what he's saying he
0: could not handle the situation he could not perceive enough to dissuade him from doing something that might that would have likely irrevocably altered the lives of his life and the victim and everybody who saw it happen. And yet you and your friends, something in each of you was activated. Your ego didn't choose, or rather the part of you that thinks of itself, didn't say, all right, we're gonna delegate now. You, you're a doctor, take care of him. Me, I'll do the hostage negotiation. (laughs) No, whatever it was in you that maybe hadn't been used before or not in a long time, immediately, Uh, sort of self-delegated
1: yeah Yeah, it's true actually that it's uh, very much happened like that and i think what's interesting i don't know in terms of the real and, and this more horrifying elements of it is that it's somatic at least for me when i think of the talk to you guys about these things i think body i think reactions muscles fibers tenders like there is that autopilot quality and it was also interesting that i put both of my hands on this guy's chest you know like i have it's, it's a daring move in one way, but to me, it felt completely natural. And, and also, like, maybe that's the only way in. You know, I think of trauma therapy. I've done a bit of it myself, you know, and, and there is, there's different strands of trauma therapy. But there's definitely one big that relates to somatic experiencing and, and working with your body, using your body. Because there is no representation. There is no language. The images are fucked up, you know, from, from distortions. So your body holds this memory. There's a very famous book called uh, "Your Body Keeps the Score" mm-hmm. by an author called Basil van der, van der, van der Kolk. Yeah, mm-hmm. you said it better. This is a very, this is a very famous, very famous book, and it's an interesting backstory because that was also at one point it was a challenger to be part of the diagnostic manual. There was something called developmental trauma, so it was a suggested diagnosis for people who have suffered repetitive problems in their life, but it cannot be accrued to one big car crash. Or, you know, like PTSD is often associated with you know, single episodes of of severe trauma. Um, I mean, Dan could speak to this a lot more than me, but but this developmental trauma approach of Levine, it was different. It was basically saying, if you grow up in an environment where there is repetitive distortions to you in one way or another, you can be fucked up as a result. So this guy, uh, Peter Levine and Basel van der Kolk, they, they suggested that this should be incorporated into the DSM manual. And it was a kind of political battle there. But I think it, it, it came in and then it came out. I don't think it's there now. Uh, but anyhow, that was just my thinking here, that the body plays a crucial role when we talk about these things. There is an entry port into people. There is a potential within an individual to work with the body to, to, to get better when things get stuck in the mental apparatus. And I guess, you know, boxing and training and all these things is is one way. And there's also yoga and massage and breath work and, you know, uh, gentle, tactile touching and all kinds of stuff. Uh, Um,
0: You're onto something, uh, a number of important things here. One that I think is is worth thinking about is um, what does it mean that certain experiences are handled, processed outside of the mind, or rather in the body part of the mind. You know, uh, van der Kolk um, and Peter Levine, you know, that they're part of a, of a growing uh, axis of uh, neuroscientists and uh, neuropsychologists who are paying attention to the vasovagal system yeah. that part of our nervous yeah. system which is you know built around the vagus nerve which is the longest nerve in the body it runs from about here straight through to the uh exit door of of the digestive system and you know for people have you who, seen
1: a picture of it have you just uh, joe have you seen a picture you can google the vagus nerve or the vagal nerve maybe in english is it i've i've heard uh, is it, i've heard va- Vegas, vagus or yeah. vagal uh
0: well it's the vagus nerve but the vagal yeah. system
1: Okay. Uh, It's huge. Like you said, Dan, it's like Mm -hmm. a a web that just runs through. Yeah. Anyhow, go ahead. Yeah. That's the, the the vagus nerve has to do also with sound, right? The vibrations of like, yum, you know, mm, Mm -hmm. like yoga. Uh, yeah, one of
0: the reasons why the um, why certain tones do something positive for us. But uh, it, it was interesting that, that you know, I'd always sort of known this in an academic way, but uh, my friend Rachel, who will join us one day, um, was the one who really made me think about what, you know, some people refer to as the enteric nervous system, which is that uh, sort of archaic outpost of our uh, nervous system, which dates back to the really some of the very beginnings of, of, of multicellular life on earth, um, you know, that long before we had a mind that was capable of processing anything in a way we would call mental. Um, we we had this original sort of um, uh, the, the, the big uh, wire, the big cable that runs down the middle and that a lot of the stuff that we can't mentalize is handled in the body and you know there are examples of this you know the way we feel uh sick to our stomach when we're really stressed uh or you know we get ibs we're constipated or 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 the other the other version uh you know when we're under a great deal of stress um how um even our body starts to get more inflammation and our immune system gets low when we've been had too many painful experiences. But one of the things this means is that the capacity to process things mentally, to be symbolic, to think things over and decide what to do, to come up with a, a repertoire of techniques and and skills and reactions that's stuff that was added two seconds ago in terms of you yeah. know the, the the time scale yeah. of life and so when we say butterflies in the stomach or you know I want to throw up when I see that or uh, things like that we are using language that points to the fact that the part of our body that the part of our mind that handles emotions that we don't know what to do with is in our belly it is elsewhere than up here and that just it's not a coincidence that this involves things that are more animalistic in nature that are more inhuman now there's one axis of it there's the neural aspect of it the bodily the psychosomatic um then there's there's big ideas like the stuff we get from Lacan and beyond you mentioned oh All right. So we have these really heavy symbolic representations, which they're representations of things that most of us could relate to without all of the intellectual baggage. There's a reason why these guys came up with these ideas. The real is that stuff that falls outside of what the human specialties are thinking about things, delaying things, finding alternatives to doing instinctual things that would get us in trouble. Um, so we talk about it or we imagine wishful thinking. Um, and then there is beyonds, O, which is the bigger reality. We sort of have to just swim through and a little bit at a time we get to process it. And if we are processing it, we get our mind gets better. We grow more capacities. Uh, we, we become more self-aware, better able to adapt basically that more and more of the hard stuff becomes manageable psychologically Um, and again it's no coincidence that so much of that stuff is bodily you know uh when uh Beyond talks about the emotional response to, to encountering things in O, the unknown, things that that exceed our skills, our capacities to deal.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Our response to that is what he calls catastrophic dread. That that is the pure fight flight emotion that I'm now encountering something for which I have absolutely no template. And my, my psyche is telling me, you're about to die. You're about to dissolve and the feeling is dread. But only through that dread, through coming through it, do we realize that we can survive, that our mind can grow, that we can handle things better. Um, And examples like the one you gave, this particular story, um, Mm -hmm. and the way you and your friends responded, as well as the way the guy with the bottle failed to respond, um, tell you that most of this stuff happens outside of consciousness you didn't plan to do those things something in each of you did them
1: yeah so i mean there is this phrase that popped up like flowing with the real or gliding with O." or you know is there is there a is there an idea to explore there that is it possible to think of of a way of living i mean i'm thinking of these buddhists you know and like the people who meditate a lot and stuff also that they can recount, you know, stories of how they—they they feel they carry this back platter of an ineffable mystic sense of of calm with them everywhere they go, right? So they've meditated so much that 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 kind of consciousness, or people who refer to themselves as awake or awoke, or you know, whatever to make of the of this these days, but. But my, my thinking here was, was a little bit in line with what you said, Dan. I mean, it was a beautiful passage, I think. You recounted this in a, in a nice way. Of And I, I can't, like, re, re back back up on it. it. What I mean is, like, the, the role of the body, the, the, the links to historical kind of evolution, where, where the neocortex is, like you said, three seconds of that story. So we carry some kind of register that has been there with us the whole time. And the more we get used to leaning in, trusting, sensing, but also continuing to find representations as our mind enlarges, as our capacity to represent widens, there's also a kind of duty in a way, I think, to try to do justice to that capacity, whether it is to writing or doing music or doing comedy or shows or whatever is is your medium. But that whole dialectic of, of enduring encounters with the real and being better at representing them represents some kind of wholeness and an integration project. And that's what I try to capture with like flowing with the real or gliding with O or something as a as a possible way to look at uh, a mature, integrated life in a way.
2: Yeah. Um, So uh what I was just thinking about is um the uh this app that I used, sort of a self-therapy app Which that one? I used to uh it's called Curable. Um oh, yeah, yeah. I think, yeah, we might have talked about this. Um it's very much based on the work of John Sarno, uh, who was all about this idea of thoughts getting stuck and like your body, you know, um, expressing them in, in physical ways. And, um, that's, you know, it, it, I mean, it's the best theory I've heard for why fibromyalgia happens at least because (laughs) like no, no one else has an answer to that really. Um, and it did have a tremendous effect. Um, and, uh, so yeah, I, I, um, that's what it reminded me of and it, it also reminded me of um, uh, I had you know growing up and and th- until recently and sometimes still I've <laughs> had issues with uh, uh, not being able to control my anger very well um, and you know I never smashed a full wine bottle over anyone's head but uh, <laughs> so You would pour it uh, out gently. And say uh, right,
0: half a bottle, less lethal. <laughs> yeah, and always Chardonnay.
2: <laughs> right. Um, yeah, it, and that was something you know. I was I was just a, a yeller basically, and it it ties into this you know idea of perceiving, um, of perceiving the world that we were talking about that like. I would get, you know, insanely frustrated and, and angry about these things. And people I was close to would say, you know, that it's it's not normal to react that way. And it's not, uh, you know, um, what's the word? Uh, proportional to the. Yeah. Yeah, appropriate. Uh, yeah it's not proportional or appropriate to the yeah. uh, to the situation and uh yeah it's it's one of those automatic responses um that it it just uh i don't know i don't like i i think the therapist i was seeing several years ago helped me a lot with it um but it's it's hard to say like really what changed it It, it's just this like sort of ongoing process of uh Remaking how you perceive the world.
0: Yeah. Well, let me ask you a question then, Joe. With cool. the um, benefit of a few years, some therapy, some thinking, some growing up, I guess, you know, the fact that I, I think we still believe that the, uh, area of the prefrontal cortex having to do with executive functions you know planning following through self-control um doesn't really finish the wiring doesn't finish until you're 26 27 even mm-hmm. 30 years old so adolescence, you know basically we're still neurologically kids until we're about 30 uh, um well yeah, in I that to case i ju- still believe it but what do you think the yelling expressed i mean what function did it serve why yelling instead of something else
2: yeah well i think it was in large well first of all yeah if it if if it takes until 30 i'm i'm barely out of that i'm just barely (laughs) over that threshold um but yeah uh it i think it was um just a, a frustration because it, it was, you know, there was always something that set me off, but I think it was always like a culmination of the, the you know, um, mass uh, uh, you know, con- a conglomeration of my frustrations with life. <laughs> like, uh, I, I'm a person who is always like hyper aware of uh, things that didn't seem right and I you know go through every day sort of like making an unconscious list of those things <laughs> and uh, then you know some perceived injustice would happen and I'm like that you, you don't get to get away with that and uh, it was this sort of expression of the frustration and what's what's really annoying is that it's not I don't know if yelling really made me feel better. Like I I again would think that like it was some way of like letting out all of those frustrations, but it didn't really. And so like getting that angry does something to your body as well and that, like then I'm all like charged up and and not feeling good. And then now when I know not to do that most of the time um I don't and then I Still don't feel great because I'm like just holding holding in like when I want to scream. As I, I have one of uh, my boss at one of my jobs um, is uh, not the, not the best guy I'm finding, and um, I had a situation recently where apparently for the past two years he had put the wrong social security number on my uh, my W two, and Oops. you know yeah. Um, you know, I don't know where, like it might've just been his accountant and he didn't even like see that happen. And then I, I didn't catch it and my accountant didn't catch it. So like it's partially on me for having just signed the wrong thing. But, uh, it, yeah. So he, he had done that. And then, you know, uh, I, I've been on unemployment for the past year, um, for being partially unemployed. And, uh, they, you know, several weeks ago, they informed me that there was an issue with getting me my payments because of this social security problem. Um, so I told him about it, and, uh, it, it, it you know, two weeks go by, three weeks go by, and, um, I don't hear an update from him. And so I ended up calling him and, and, um, Asking for an update, and he said, "Oh, I'll try to contact my accountant today." And it was like, "Okay, so nothing's happened yet." Um, And you know, unemployment's gonna like they they say that I owe them money back now because I've received money based on income I got from this employer that I'm technically not employed with because it's not my social security number. So they're like, "Oh, you owe this money back." So I told him like, "I'm." I'm gonna to have to like pay them two thousand dollars if you don't do this <laughs> and like i told you about this several weeks ago and 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 he he started yelling at me basically he just started like unhinged just screaming over the phone um like this you know it's not my fault like you signed off on the thing and like um when you know the the conversation i was having had nothing to do with blame it was just sort of like this has to happen, and you're the one who can make it happen, so please do it. Um, but, so he starts screaming at me, and, and I just hung up on him. Like, and this is something that in the past, I might have uh, yelled back, or I would have hung up the phone and then immediately emailed and said, hey, I quit. Um, <laughs> but uh, instead, I, I did nothing, which I think is is the right thing to do. Um, and I felt awful for a week or two. Um, I had just some of the worst anxiety of the past few years and um, just just felt terrible. And knowing you, knowing what you
0: need and what you definitely don't need. What was the real source of the anxiety there? Because you mentioned a few things, one is that you hung up without yelling. You hung up without the immediate uh, email follow up. Um, what do you think the fire that fueled the that you know that that, that fueled that anxiety was?
2: I don't know. I mean, I think uh, part of it is like just the. The tax situation and it's like well is this going to get worked out um, and I think part of it is also just that sort of inner that the, this inner like injustice clock that I feel like I've always had um, where it was like this guy's not getting what's coming to him <laughs> like no one has told him off I haven't you know uh, I haven't really said anything to him he's not gonna like face any consequence Um, and I can all I can do is just like sit here and and wait has the, has the issue been fixed now Joe this was
1: a couple of weeks ago you said has yeah. he fixed this now because the uh, way you recount the story it sounds like he needs to fix this, right? yeah,
2: um, so what happened was, um he ended up saying, "Hey, like, uh, so pay, you know, pay pay for half of like the accountant fee or something because you know because like technically it, it is on me too what so the fuck? yeah, but, oh but he was like, yeah, you gotta pay for for half of this." and it was my reaction to that is like, well, Again, you've known about this for a long time, and you, if, if that was your issue, was that you, uh, you know, felt that this was partially my fault, which is true, and you wanted me to pay for half of it, well, you should have said that uh, <laughs> instead of just ass. not. Demanding. But I mean, the reason I was
1: asking was also because there's different dimensions to this, right? I mean, anger and rage, I mean, yeah, one can talk about them as biological drives, also serving purposes and in this latter part of the story that we talk about now there is a role for some kind of well mature directed anger right i mean the guy has fucked you he has not followed through on his responsibility you right. can get in trouble you can get in serious trouble that also has financial consequences right so in a in a kind of mature manner it is appropriate and adaptive to be I need to follow through right to be assertive perhaps rather than angry but but to be strong like this needs to be taken care of so that's why i was asking did the did the issue come through because because in that aspect anger is appropriate at least that's how i feel after hearing your story like the guy is he's he's not supposed to be able to do this but then there is the first half of the story where you also talk about this in terms of your your Earlier life and so on. And I mean, I can relate to this on many levels, and it's different for everybody, I guess, but there's sometimes delicate interplays between, you know, one emotion can cover other emotions. And sometimes anger can be combined with helplessness or a feeling of lack of resource, right? I mean, power is intricate, I think, in these discussions. Whether we talk about a family or we talk about an employment situation, you know, the child has less power than its parents or siblings if they're older. And an employee has less power than the boss of the employee. So this kind of symbolic access or who gets to dictate what is appropriate behavior or, you know, the parent might say, don't do this because it's not what you're supposed to do. There is a, there's a uh, unmistakable power element infused in this. And, you know, helplessness can be a very powerful feeling. I mean, it's that dread in a way that Dan spoke about earlier, the catastrophic dread. It could also be linked to the, to the feeling of, you know, very early years in one's life if there are things lacking. We talked about this in some episode, right? Like the mother is usually the primary caregiver. You know, there could be food, nutrition, but there could be emotional support, emotional security, all kinds of things that, that we help our children with. I mean, my son is 18 months now, so it's on my mind all the time how extremely dependent and vulnerable they are. I mean, he can't fucking... He can't do anything by himself. So we all come from that story. Each and every one of us have been like small burping little ducks. You know, like Winnicott says, there is no such thing mm. as a child without his mother. There is like, no you can't such thing as it. a baby. Yeah, uh, there's no such thing as a baby. There is only a baby and its caregiver. I mean, a, a baby is a pure vulnerable, the most vulnerable mammal of all. So... That sense of helplessness that we all have, more or less repressed, can be activated in different situations. And anger can be one way. I mean, these are more my own reflections of my life, and I don't know if they're applicable to your situation, Joe. But, but helplessness can be a very difficult situation to deal with. And if, for example, you think that this injustice that you had witnessed matters to you, and your surroundings don't acknowledge that, that kind of becomes a receipt of a way of a helpless position. Look, right. I have seen this, this matters to me, listen to me. And the environment says, well, this is not important. You should behave in a different way. Um, you know, this is a little bit how I interpret your story. It's not meant to explain what, what yeah. is and what is not. I'm just relaying to you how I heard the, your story. Yeah. And so it's easy for me to feel, uh, empathic with the, the way I hear your story that if things that matter matters to, to me, I, I, tell them to people that are close to me and they they say this doesn't matter to me that can click with that helplessness that i have experienced in life and anger has been one way of trying to say this to people because i don't know it myself so i don't know how the fuck should i explain all these colliding emotions i'll just scream (laughs) right because that that gives a sense of relief but as you say it's not one doesn't feel as relieved afterwards, maybe. Well, think right. of
0: what the scream is and the helplessness is. Um, I'm thinking just in terms of the the Lacan we started with, you got a failure on at least two levels here. you got the real. The real is, here's what happened, all right? And then we attempt to address the real, but also our feelings, our personal needs, first through the imaginary, you know, we, we, there's a part of us that wants either justice or we imagine help. We imagine how something is going to go. And then we attempt and, the, and, and, and you, you see the reaction of the person in authority, the person with power. The person with power faced with a real that he didn't like had a tantrum. The tantrum was a failure of the symbolic order. Now that's his thing. Looking at you, Joe, I'm thinking, well, different families. It was a um, uh, patient of mine who we got a lot of mileage out of learning that the message growing up in his house as a man in his 60s now was he who gets angry loses. And we generalized that to he who expresses any reaction loses, which, of course, was used as a way of controlling the children in the house. Um, because uh, the child's reaction invariably reflects. Well, let's see. If the child is angry because he didn't get A, B, and C, there's a good chance that means that I screwed up as a parent. And so, I'm not going to tell you to shut up because you're wrong. I'm going to tell you to shut up because you just made me feel guilty. But I'm not going yes. to let you know that. So I'm just going to tell you it's your fault. Even if I have no way of convincing you it's your fault, I'll just drill it into you. And yeah spot on. yeah, and, and think about it. For me, uh, I mean, I, I got this giant wave of, of angry empathy for you, Joe. I immediately started thinking, well, all right, Uncle Dan wants to fix the situation <laughs> because you're not 14 years old. It just this <laughs> this is my primal reaction to my kin getting fucked with. And um, I, I'm thinking, on the one hand, I really want to teach this guy that it's a good idea to be nicer to people. And I want to do so in a way that illustrates how not nice I can be. That's my imaginary. And then there's the breakdown of the symbolic order, which is the despair. And I get this when there is no point to communication because at least one party has no inclination to build a symbolic bridge. All he wants to do is yell and scream and that's the boss, right? You know, um, that brings up a feeling of angry, helpless despair in me. Yeah. You know, I could say what I need to say. It ain't going to get me anything. Yeah. You know, it might get me fired. Yeah, And then, and then what fight am I going to fight? So, you know, there is no point to communication. I mean, that is a horrible thought. Right.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, I don't I don't plan on staying there um, (laughs) after this is resolved. But yeah. Yeah. You know, I I would like to, uh, you know, get an update from him, but I don't want (laughs) to interact with him at all because I know what happened last time I asked for an update.
1: I think it was a really important point that you touched on, Dan, or at least it hit me a lot. Maybe because I have that toddler at home, you know, it's such a good point that I think takes so much time for many, many people. That's my my uh, judge. What do you call it? Pre uh, prejudice. What do you call? Yeah, prejudice. Maybe this is clear to everybody except me. But for me, it's been a a long, hardest work to approach what you just said there. That you know when when my child is frustrated and angry and screams, I get angry. And the reason I get angry with him is because I can't deal with my own sense of inefficiency, that his anger somehow reflects something about me that I can't deal with. So the temptation to try to shut him down is very real, you know, but I, luckily enough, I can see this pattern already. Uh, I think a lot of, Older folks in previous generations maybe never got that far. I think it's a it's a very um, nuanced matrix to be able to to see and talk about these things. That somebody's anxiety raises my anxiety, but my anxiety is risen by the image that I get of myself in being unable to respond to his or her needs. And in that limbo, many a child and and uh, their parents. Have walked, I think, in that in that electrified tightrope, as Mike Egan writes about. There can be a whole life of miscommunication, misunderstanding, um, fights between a teenager and his dad. You know, uh, that that's sad sometimes to think about. But it's uh, it's really cool that this comes up because I think it brings that consciousness. It brings that expanded mind that we spoke about the possibility to see things from a third position where it's like, no, I don't need to tell my son to shut up because, you know, he has every right to be angry. He's 18 months old. I I just need to keep working on dealing why, why this emerges in me and what that has to do with my history and, and how I can become better at holding that for myself and letting him be 18 min- months old and doing exactly what he's supposed to do, scream and throw up and yell and, you know,
0: you are both so, transforming in O.
1: Yeah, you know, exactly. Or failing yeah. to do so. Yeah, but at least trying. So I think that was a, that was a very was somewhat kind of meta point that you touched on there. I think. Um, cool. Yeah.
0: yeah. Well, I'm glad well, we've gotten right. through the introduction to today's uh, <laughs> yeah. episode. Now we can dig in a little. Yeah. What do you say, So John? what have
1: what? we figured out? This is my this is my yeah. part of the show. right? What have we figured out, guys? Let's take a round of, of. Um, maybe I can start. Then I, I think what, what has stuck with me are these, these thoughts about the the possibility of evolution in O, uh, in a way that when trauma happens, it shatters our perception, but that also gives us a possibility or, or not a possibility. There is a need, I think, because after trauma, one is in pain. So there is a need to update and, you know, upsensitize the linguistical, symbolic, and imaginary filters so that the experience becomes coherent again. And that can entail finding new friends and new groups, but it doesn't have to. It could also be an internal work, I think. But it is a work, or at least that's my view of it, that there is a work of updating the senses. So, for me, I almost got a visual image of that somehow, how the real flows through like a river or like a field And then we have these human orchestrated three-second version. Like we have language and we have images in our head and stuff. But they are like, they're very new in this. The body body runs a lot of the show. So there is a Mm -hmm. certain kind of respect and depth that needs to come for one's own body and the wisdom that it holds. So I think those are some kind of. Yeah, there is some kind of possibility of the symbolic bridge, like Dan spoke about, also. Like there is a bridge of going from a, from a you know happy place, trauma place, post-trauma place. That journey is possible, uh, and it's worth it's worth striving for. I think.
0: And when the world uh, messes with you, refuses to engage, what capacity do you have in yourself to tolerate it, to solve yeah. it in a way? YOU KNOW, I THINK THE the IDEA THAT THAT TRANSFORMATION IN O, uh, that, THAT THAT IS SOMETHING WE ARE ALWAYS CHALLENGED TO DO. Um, AS LONG AS THAT IS HAPPENING, WE GET BETTER AND BETTER AT TAKING THESE RAW REACTIONS AND AT LEAST BUYING OURSELVES TIME AND SOMETIMES WORDS. AND THE WORD TRANSFORMATION IS IMPORTANT HERE. IT'S NOT JUST US WHO ARE TRANSFORMING OR WE WHO ARE TRANSFORMING. I think you know, what's the alternative to rage, to that helpless, rageful reaction, which we all know so well? Uh, well, one thing is our ability to transform, per se. You know, it's one thing to be able to, you know, find the perfect sentence to say to your asshole boss, um, so the problem gets taken care of. But we also have we have good deeds. We have paying it forward. We have art. Music, you know, writing essays and even angry political screeds about how how cruel and fucked up and arbitrary the world is. Um, Make something, you know, people say, yeah, you're going to make something of it. Well, yeah, I'm going to make something of it. I'm going to write a poem. (laughs)
2: Yes.
0: (laughs) I'm going to come up with a new salad dressing. You know, whatever it is that, that lets me take this raw stuff and not just be trapped in my own bile, you know, it gives hope, you know, makes it possible to connect internally and intersubjectively, you know, as you would say.
1: Yeah. Joe, what are your, um, my, um, penny penny for your thoughts?
0: (laughs) He Um, deserves a raise. Well, (laughs) nickel.
2: (laughs) Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I think I'm, I'm feeling more so than our, our first two episodes. I'm feeling, uh, more, uh, like I'm walking away with more questions than answers, but, um, I think that's fine too. And I, I think, um, it's, I mean, like I said before the, uh, the sort of anger journey I've been on showed me that, uh. This is all uh, an ongoing process and, um, and, and you know, uh, non-linear in many, many cases, um, process of uh, becoming more aware um, and not necessarily striving for perfection in your, you know, in your perception and how you deal with the world, but um, at least an, an awareness of it. <laughs> and, uh, and you know, yeah, sometimes asking questions is a really profound
1: art. You know, it's, a, it's also a sublimated, higher representational form of channeling certain emotions. You know, asking difficult and good questions is sometimes a key to continue the journey. A question you carries that you, it forward. Yeah, no, but think about the whole quantum idea, right? The question you ask is the answer you get. I mean, so, so perhaps it's not a, only a bad thing that you walk away today with more questions. I mean, maybe that's there is some potential in that. Like, what are those questions? You know, think about them. Ask them. Right. Use your voice, you know, because uh, questions are powerful.
2: Yeah. Um, so uh, one last thing. in in, um, in the vein of creating art, uh, to deal with ourselves. Um, I am putting something in the chat. This is a video cool. that I just put out. It's about the politics of Star Trek, which is... <laughs> <laughs> I knew it was going to come back to All right. which is Mostly what I talk about in in life. Oh, yeah.
0: Um, we talked about the inner light last time. Which one is this?
2: This one is more general. It's about the uh, um, there's an ongoing debate on on the left about whether the, the about whether the federation is socialist or just approaching socialist or not even close. <laughs> um, people so have my word, to do that. Socialist
0: those who, you, th- those who accuse us of becoming socialist, I find, are the least likely to know what the hell the word means.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting because it is a debate among people who, uh, you know, some of them think it would be good if it was socialist and some uh, some don't. <laughs> I see the Ferengi as representatives of the free market. Yes. <laughs> is that yeah, it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, And, uh, yeah, actually my, my previous video on this channel was about the inner light. Uh, so there's that too. Um, at some point I might talk about a different pop culture franchise, but we'll see. (laughs) Is this yours actually? The radicalize me? Yeah.
0: Nicely done.
2: Yeah. So radicalize me is my podcast and, uh, I, you know, expanded it to YouTube, um, the podcast cool. is more me interviewing So let's pump and- this
1: to all all the figuring out as we go along, listeners, that you all go and pick Joe's podcast on Radicalize Joe, Me.
0: When you edit this, you got to put your link in there, right? Yeah. yeah. You know, market it, baby. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, and this also challenges us, Mark, Martin, to come up with a better name.
1: Yeah, we'll, we'll figure it out. <laughs> cool all right heck yeah So, yeah is that is that about it It yeah the uh, (laughs) the the psychic potential to become better at confronting the real and dealing with situations in new ways it's an ongoing it's an ongoing learning experience
0: yeah reel me in
1: (laughs) hey that that's gonna be the the last,
0: I think. Reel it in, real in. Reel it in, keep right. it real. Yeah, I reel like it that. In. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Cool. 4%. So
1: should we? We call it call it that.
2: Let's call it that. We are now yeah. going to be.
0: We call it we reel it in, with an with an R E A L. Yeah.
2: We'll or real In. <laughs> yeah, I like it. It or me. Cool. Oh, um, I think it. Make it closer to the, uh, the phrase itself. Yeah. All right. <laughs> cool.
0: We have a name. Guys, have a great week. All Everybody right. else, you have son. a great week. See ya. Bye. Bye.